intern with us, what was that, two summers ago? Maybe? Yeah, two, two, three? Three summers ago? It's a long time ago. Uh, so Nate is uh, now, he is the RUF uh, campus minister at Purdue, uh, and uh, he has graciously agreed to bring the word for us this morning. So uh, welcome, Nate. Uh, good morning. If you want to open your Bibles, like Josh said, to First Peter, that's where we're going to be this morning, starting in verse 7. Uh, if you were like me yesterday, you might have been a little grumpy that there was snow on your car. Um, I guess my opinion is that uh, before Christmas, we can have all the snow we want. After Christmas, it can be as cold as it wants, as long as there's no snow. Uh, I don't know. It's, it seems to be connected to the holiday in some way. Anyway... 1 Peter 4, back on topic, starting in verse 7. It says here, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him being glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, several years ago, my wife and I uh, started binge-watching Survivor. Um, some of you maybe are familiar with the show. Uh, but essentially, they bring a bunch of people onto this island together who do not know each other, who are from various walks of life, right? And their goal in the game is to outwit, outplay, and outlast. So they partake in challenges of all sorts. Uh, they try to form these social relationships to further themselves in the game. But one of the most interesting things about the show is that you form these alliances with your uh, friends until it is inconvenient for them to be your friend, and then you vote them off the island, right? And it's funny hearing the explanations of the people that make it to the end who have probably been betrayed by someone else on the island, right? And now they're in this position where someone else has to vote for them in order to win the game, right? And now they're sitting there and they're asked, well, why did you vote me off? You said that we were going to the end, right? And it's sort of this uncomfortable moment where this person has made it much farther than they have sometimes. And they're about to try to give them money because they've won the game after they've betrayed them. It's interesting how community often becomes convenient for us until it's not, right? If anything, our modern world, in a sense, is not built for a community that, that exists without self-interest, which is hard, right? Like, Jake Meter, in his article in The Atlantic, wrote on this problem of why young people or even people in general are leaving the church. And he said this, Contemporary America simply isn't set up to promote mutuality, care, or common life. 
Rather, it is designed to maximize individual accomplishment as defined by professional and financial success. Such a system leaves precious little time or energy for forms of community that don't contribute to one's own professional life, or as one ages, the professional prospects of one's children. I think that what this displays is not just a look out at the world, right, that doesn't want religion, right? That might be an easy conception. Well, we want Jesus, we want to be a part of a religious community, so therefore we want community. I think rather this reveals two competing realities that exist between you and I, like this internal struggle that we have. First, you and I want to feel like what we are doing matters, right? It could be our work, it could be our family, it could be self-accomplishment, it could be our job, some sort of existential justification that what we will do will have an impact. But we also want this other thing, right? We want to feel deeply like we belong to others. That we're in a community that is meaningful, that is important, that is growing us as we grow with other people. We want deep friendships. We want community that will be here for us in the darkest moments and to celebrate our joys. Often, though, the reality is that we would rather work for the sake of ourselves. And we often want community only until it stops benefiting us. So what does the gospel have to say to both of these longings, right? And how does the gospel actually change us so that we find good use of both our belonging and our gifts? That's the question I want to ask today. So we're going to look at three things that Peter uses to define the Christian community, the church as prayerful, the church as hospitable, and the church as gifted. So let's start with the church as prayerful. If you'll look back with me at verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's almost as if our passage starts with this like startling contrast between two profound statements. First, that the end is at hand. And if, you've, if you have any familiarity with the New Testament, the New Testament writers seem to be somewhat consumed with this idea that the end is at hand, right? Which is ironic because we're probably reading this as modern people thinking, well, if the end is at hand, then why are we... like? something like 2,000 years has passed, and we're still kind of hanging out, and how does this have any sort of contemporary application? Well, first, we have to read it as the New Testament writers meant to tell us something, right? The end is not necessarily chronological. It's, it's theological. It's trying to tell us something about God and his work in the story of the world that he's telling, right? It's telling us something about God's work rather than necessarily his timeline, If we just celebrated Advent, right, and that was, Advent is this waiting period as we await the second Advent of Christ that is to come. So in a sense, Christ's work is already and it's not yet, right? We're waiting in this time for Christ to return, and yet Peter here tells us that the end is at hand. But if the end of the world is here, 
in Peter's words, then what are we to make of the idea that we're to be like sober-minded and self-control, right? If you were to read any sort of like fiction novel about the end of the world, everybody is not acting sober-minded or self-controlled, right? Like that seems counterintuitive to the way in which we would deal with the fact like, oh, hey guys, the end is at hand. Also be really calm and really composed. That seems strange. It's almost as if um, I was flying recently and it's sort of like the thing where they explain to you how to put a mask on, right? Like if the plane is going to go down or if there's an emergency, then you're supposed to put this mask on and somehow that's supposed to help you if the plane is actually going to go down. Which is funny because like, if I'm putting this thing on and I'm flying at 40,000 feet, going incredibly fast, they're telling me, hey, be really calm, put your mask on, and then put your kid's mask on. Like, that's supposed to... That seems counterintuitive, right? <laughs> like, we're going down, put, put this thing on that's supposed to help you breathe and be sober-minded and self-controlled, but that's kind of what Peter is doing here. He's framing the way in which, okay, the end is at hand, and there's all sorts of chaos going on, but the Christian community is defined by this sober-mindedness, this self-control, this at-peaceness, this non-anxious presence, and it's rooted in our prayer life. Because for you and I, for the church, prayer is not merely a suggestion. At least that's what Peter seems to be implying here. Prayer is actually a gift that bends our will to the Lord's in order that we might actually be able to be sober-minded and self-controlled. It calls us back to the most important relationship that we have. He knows that we can't just muster up some sort of like self-peace within ourselves. He calls us to our relationship with the Lord, to pray, to the most fundamental part of who we are as Christians is that we're in Christ and now we've been reconciled to God, that we're in right relationship with him. How to be sober-minded, how to be self-controlled, well, it starts with prayer. The problem, though, is that we don't pray as Peter tells us here, right? Self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Oftentimes an issue that they were dealing with, and often the issue that we deal with, is that we pray in order to get something or in order to feel something. We pray for this sort of ultra-spiritual experience that we might have with the Lord, or we're just praying in order that God would like distribute something to us. That would, that would make my prayers, and it often has, really anxious, right? Like that would kind of be the opposite of sober and self-controlled. That would be really reactionary. Often we view prayer as a deep desire for ecstasy and we're reacting to all of the chaos that's going on around us. But the call here is 
is this sober-mindedness, this self-control, or this thoughtful, purposeful, and humble prayer that doesn't ask, what can we get from God, but rather, what does God want from us? Or rather, how is he bending us toward himself rather than toward us? In a way, prayer is placing us rightly before God. It's putting us in our place in the most healthy way so that we might actually be sober-minded and self-controlled because the end is here. What if prayer was about getting God rather than getting something from God? This is the start of the way in which he wants to form the Christian community, that it's prayerful, that it seeks God above all things. But that's not the end of Christian community, right? Because then he brings us to the church as hospitable, and I don't think it's an accident that Peter brings us first to God and then immediately brings us to our neighbor, says here in verse 8, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, right? It almost echoes back to 1 Corinthians 13, right? Where Paul emphasizes love above all things, right? But Peter here is not merely suggesting, but demanding that the Christian community be different than any other community that we exist in. If you're skeptical of Christianity or, or you're coming in and maybe you're coming back to church for the first time in a while, this is probably the point at which you have had either a bad experience or a hard experience or you're dealing with all sorts of conflict from a past experience or maybe you've been hurt by the church in a certain way. But this is the point that's probably hardest. Why can't I just do me and God? Or why do I have to be bound to other people in order to follow Jesus, right? Things like authority or mutuality or commitment beyond what's for us, that is, that is just hard for any of us. And yet it's like required of being a part of the Christian community, which is hard to wrap our minds around. Because for Christians, for many of us, maybe for all of us at some point, this is the place where we've likely been hurt. But Peter is not a, unaware that the Christian community involves sinful and broken people. Like, that's not, <laughs> he's not like sending this message like, hey, I'm sending this to you guys because I know that you've got it all figured out. That would be almost absurd, right? Because when Peter denies Jesus and then is restored, what is the question that Jesus asks him? Peter, do you love me? He asks him three times, right, in order to restore him. But the hard part for you and I is like, if love covers a multitude of sins, we like to love people like us. That's like the easy part. Like, uh, that's almost effortless to love people that we like enjoy being around. But if you've been around any sort of group or community or small group or you insert 
gathering of people, you know that this is not the way that community exists. There are not people that you like in every single group. And yet Peter is telling us to love them. Peter actually demands that we love our neighbors, especially the church. Why? Why, why such a hard, hard word to love people that are broken, um, to have other people love us when we're very broken? That seems difficult because our sanctification involves love which seeks the good of our neighbor. That's why Peter tells us this. Because not only is our sanctification at stake in the Christian community, but others. That what covers a multitude of sins here is this love and radical hospitality toward others that that isn't absent of repentance, but is it like the forefront. That we apologize to one another. That we're quick to forgive That we recognize that when we only see other people's sin, that we're never going to be able to love in a Christian community like this. But if we see our own sin, and we realize the ways in which we have hurt people, then it becomes much easier for love to be something that covers a multitude of sins because we know how much our sins have been covered. But it doesn't just stop there with love because love actually does something right? Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Love does something in that it shows hospitality. If the church is to do anything well, it is to be hospitable especially to one another. Especially to the people gathered for worship, the people that we meet with in our small groups, in our community groups, were especially to show hospitality toward these people. Cornell West said, justice is what love looks like in public, and he's right. But that makes me conclude that hospitality, then, is giving up our rights and our good for the sake of others. It's actually this sort of unjustness towards ourselves for the sake of someone else. That's what hospitality is, right? It's giving up what we have, what's beneficial to us. It could be our resources, our time, our attention. But it gives up something of ourselves in order that someone else might be blessed. It is other-centered rather than us-centered. In a way, it is unjust in that it does for others what they don't even deserve. Because you and I didn't really deserve anything in the first place. And the Christian community is good for us because it doesn't ask what is right for us, but rather, because God took an unjust punishment, we give up what we have because we desire for our brothers and sisters to be loved well. We desire for our brothers and sisters to be sanctified And this is why God gifts the church specifically for this task. So let's think about this. The church is gifted. Verse 11. No, verse 10. And each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's 
varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The beauty of the church is that God is active in not leaving them unprepared. He knows that we're not very good at prayer. He knows that we're not very good at loving one another. He knows that we're not very hospitable together. But he's wise enough to give us not just one gift, but many gifts. If the church was given one gift, that would be rather interesting, right? We would all kind of be robots doing the same function, right? Like if everyone was teaching, then one, it would make it really hard to figure out what we were doing on Sundays because you'd have to find someone else every week because God's like, hey, I gave everyone one gift teaching. Okay, what are we supposed to do about worship? Well, I don't know. Figure it out, right? Or if the only gift that he gave the church was hospitality, then we'd have a lot of people loving each other really well, and everyone would also be like, well, what are we supposed to do? I don't know, but we're supposed to give up a lot of things for one another. But God doesn't do that, right? He gives the church a variety of gifts that are reflected in a variety of different ways, and you see this here as good stewards of God's varied grace or diverse grace in the sense that how he's gifting the church looks different. So he does this for the sake of the church, right? So that we would have these varied gifts that would serve one another, that would bless one another, but he also does this for the sake of the world. He gifts us that we might be active in changing one another and the place where we find ourselves. I think oftentimes when we, you and I think about evangelism, we think in terms of like an apologetic argument or people that are really good at making an argument or defending or teaching something in that moment. But I think a more compelling argument when we think about the spiritual gifts is that each one of them are used to win people to the Lord. Not all of us are going to be very good at like going out on the street, finding someone and striking up a conversation with them in order to display like a four-step process in which someone then receives Christ in that moment. But some of us are going to be wildly hospitable. Some of us are going to be teachers. Some of us are going to shepherd and care for people well. But the variety of the gifts actually goes to show the beauty of the church and what's appealing to the unbeliever about it. That not all of us are the same. And yet we have the same vision that we would actually see Christ glorified. So that's the first part of this gifting. But it's also recognizing that the gifting of the church isn't really about you and I. It's about the glory of God. And the wisdom of God is recognizing that you and I can't do Christian community with ability, but rather in recognizing our inability. The other place where I think we miss on spiritual gifts is we think that there's some type of like magic ability that God gives us. 
Like, okay, I'm not good at singing, but now I've started following Jesus, so hopefully he makes me good at singing in order that I can sing at church. I have a cool ability. I get to use that gift in a very public way in order to make me feel good and hopefully bless the church, right? But gifting is not the same as ability. I think, if anything, the church in, has elevated ability over gifting or character, right? But that's not what it talks about here. What it shows in many ways is our inability to pray well, that we're not sober-minded, our inability to show hospitality to one another because we want to get something, or we want to outwit, outplay, and outlast, right? We play Christian community like it's Survivor until we have to vote someone off the island. Our inability to love, and yet God is wise enough to gift us in one way. That he gifts us his son, which changes the whole conversation. It leaves us utterly dependent and relying upon the Lord to work because we couldn't even work to change our own hearts. You and I couldn't do it. We still struggle to pray well, right? We still struggle to show hospitality. We still struggle to love in a way that's actually going to cover a multitude of sins rather than making sure my sin is hidden while others is right on full display. But he gifts us his son. And this is really the beauty of the church. That we're humbly aware of our inability in our need to grow, and really our desperate need to fall again at the feet of Jesus, to repent and be reminded of the gospel again and again. What's not going to motivate your prayer life is if I got up here and said, hey, you need to pray more. I'm, I'm not going to be able to motivate you to do hospitality by just saying, hey, we really, it would be really good if our, our church did hospitality. I wouldn't be able to do that. It wouldn't change anything. What changes us is recognizing that we couldn't do any of these things except with Jesus. That that's what changes our hearts again and again in order that we might actually be changed to show hospitality, to love well, to pray and actually pray in a way that is sober-minded and self-controlled because we know that the same God who is at work in saving us in his Son, that we did nothing to do that, is the same God who's in control of all things, even at the end. That's what makes us sober-minded and self-controlled, is a proper recognition of who we are in Jesus. The Christian community prays well, it loves well, and is gifted only because in Christ has it been changed. That's the only way that we have been brought from darkness to light.
That's how we're going to grow in prayer. That's how we're going to grow in hospitality. That's how we're going to grow in love. And that's going to, how we're going to grow in seeing our gifts, not in the service of ourselves, but in the service of others. So as we leave this morning, as we think about all of these things, let us be motiva- motivated by the fact that God is at work in our hearts to make us new. And that might change the way in which we think about community entirely. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the ways in which you are constantly at work in our lives. I pray that you would help us to see you and be completely dependent upon you as we walk through this week. I pray that you would help us to love our neighbors better, that we would learn to love you more, that we would learn to love to pray and we would learn to love to be with you. We pray that as we go throughout this week, that we would be consistently reminded of the gospel is the only thing that can change us and grow us. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you guys to stand as we respond and sing together.